The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, as you know, the class is titled How to Speak to and Love Those Trapped in the LGBTQIA Deception. But, but connected to that is the image of God. The image of God. So we have a couple things that we're thinking through here. And I just want to say at the outset, parents and, and, and our, our young folks, we're not going to use any explicit language. We're going to use appropriate language. But we're going to, we're going to talk about the real issues at hand here, Okay. So, um, parents, you, you have obviously the responsibility and the, and the great joy of discipling your kids as the, as the primary disciplers, but you belong to the body of Christ, and we are a family, so we talk about the things that families talk about, and so that's what we're going to do. So I know you feel it. I know that you feel all of what we're going to talk about. You see it. We live in a world that is filled with evil and shocking things, murder, Disease, plagues, betrayal, bombings, terrorism, famines, earthquakes, wars, holocausts, genocide. Those things have haunted the pages of history forever, haven't they? I mean, there, there is no golden age. Every era, every century has been plagued with murder, death, destruction, We're often tempted to think back, you know, oh, maybe if if we could just go back to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, you know, whatever, whatever generation you think it was, we were so much better off back then. The reality is that the sin was all still there. The depravity was all still there. But what was it? It was hidden. It wasn't displayed on TV screens and in social media. It was, it was hidden. It was, it was discreet. And so it's, but it's not just out there, it's right here in our own county, in our own city, in our own area, in our own communities. There's desperately confused and lost teenagers and adults in our community who've been sucked in and trapped by all sorts of sin, and all of us as well, before Christ saved us. And if you have not bowed the, the knee, knee to King Jesus, you serve a master. And it's not Christ, but it's yourself. And so all of us are affected and touched by depravity, whether sins of the LGBTQ movement, it's on social media, it's on YouTube, Netflix, Disney+, Plus, whatever it is, all of, all of those in our lives are inundated with messages about corrupt sexuality, the untold damage that's been done to innumerable marriages, thanks to the sin of man and the devastation of online impurity, we, we know those things. And it is utterly heartbreaking, isn't it? If you've spent any time with other people bearing each other's burdens, you know that sin, particularly the sins of sexuality, are destructive. And that's our focus for this, these next few weeks here. But you feel it and you hear it everywhere. And to be sure, it, it, it is getting worse. It is. Uh, it's not getting better at the moment. It's getting worse, and, and we see that. And by the way, there's a lot of teaching I'm going to do in the next few weeks here, so we'll, we'll have time for questions, especially in our, in our third week as we kind of do some Q&A stuff. But, uh, so just so buckle up, all right? Uh, hang in there. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Listen to this. 20 years ago, this is by a, a pastor named Jesse Johnson, who's a, he was a, he's a professor, an adjunct professor at the Master's Seminary. 20 years ago, the transgender movement used to say, I'm a boy to me, so you have to respect my reality. You have to respect that. And of course, that's logically absurd, and relativism is not sustainable as a worldview. In other words, I'm a boy, and if I say I'm a girl, and you have to respect that, because truth is relative, you can kind of define truth however you want. Well, that's absurd, right? But that was the expectation, which is why it's no longer the dominant worldview of the LGBTQ movement. They've moved beyond claiming that two plus two is five for me, right? And are now in a place where they declare math is evil, but not as evil as Christianity. 
right? So, so math is evil, you know, break away from math, the constraints of two plus two being four, that's evil. We've got to, we've got to go beyond that. But not only that, Christianity is evil even more. And so they assert their worldview as morally superior and our worldview as morally evil because we're making truth claims. We're saying, no, there is an objective reality. There are things that are true and false. There are things like gender, male and female. There is right and wrong and all of that. And that is the opposite of relativism, Jesse Johnson says. So absolute truth is disguised as relativism. They say, no, 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 there's no absolute truth. And that is the truth. Moral relativism, uh, sorry, absolute truth. They believe in it. They, they, they betray their worldview. It's just disguised as relativism, but it's a kind of absolute truth that might sue you if you disagree with it. Right, if you, in our culture, if you, if you make a stance about these things, you might, end up, you might end up losing your business. And that's the world that we live in. So what does all that have to do with, with our topic? Well, here's what we're going to do. We kind of need to build some, some tracks to run on here. Uh, we could just talk about this transgenderism, right? Or the LGBTQ issues. And we will, but we need to start first with a, a bigger view, a bigger picture, which is the sovereignty of God. Now, now why do I say that? Well, uh, let me give you a little bit of an illustration here. If you were to view the world as a ship, how's the ship doing? How does it seem to be doing? And just look at the culture at large. Sinking. Sinking. Does anyone else relate to that? Yeah. It feels like, it seems like, as you, you pull up the, the headlines, you just listen to your, your favorite news podcast, it seems like the ship is sinking. Sometimes you just need to unfollow the podcast, take your earbuds out, and just read your Bible. In fact, you should be doing that anyways. But it seems like it's a sinking ship. And in ways, as we anticipate the second coming of Christ, where Christ is going to come and He is going to restore all things, He's going to judge the living and the dead, He's going to set up His kingdom here on planet Earth, and He's going to rule over the nations with justice and equity. He is going to do that. But sometimes it feels like as we're waiting, this ship is just going down fast, and maybe the best thing to do would just be to slowly walk away just kind of fold our arms, go, man, that's, that's a pity. That's really sad. Think of the Titanic, right? If people were just sitting there, watching it sink, doing nothing, the, the reality is there's rescue boats put in the water, and a lot of people did die. We know that. But imagine a, the boat is sinking, but there's a captain on shore who's saying, hey, this ship is going down. We're aware. We're sending in help. We're sending in the rescue team. Who is the rescue team? you it's us it's me and you right we are the rescue team because here's the thing on that sinking ship on that boat that is going down are god's elect those that god has predestined from before the foundations of the world that he would love and save he had loved them and would save them and draw them to himself and save them from the destruction of their own sin and so that's why we need to start with the sovereignty of God. Because if we forget that there is a sovereign God over all of this, then we might very well be tempted to step back and just kind of watch it go to waste and not do anything. But that's exactly why God has you in your school, why he has you in your job, why he has you in your neighborhood, your family, your relationships, all of that. Because there are desperate and lost people who need to hear that there's good news, that there's a savior who is coming. So, so that's why we have to start with the sovereignty of God. Otherwise, <clears throat> we get fixated on the ship that seems to just be going down and it's too scary, it's too big, it's too intimidating, it's too yucky. And maybe you feel that too. This is just kind of yucky stuff. I just want to stay away from it. It's icky. Just let's not even think about it or touch it. But we must remember that there is a mission. There's a mission. And it's to see God rescue those people who are suffering in their sin because of their sin, because of Satan and because of a broken society and all of that. But God has sent us into the world 
to rescue them if we are trusting in Christ. And so, so that's where we're going to start. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God, which is the, 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 the life support for the believer in a, a culture, in a world that looks like it's falling apart at the seams. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. And we're going to talk about the image of God. And we're going to talk about LGBTQ issues and how to engage and love and, and care for these people who are desperately trapped in their sins. So that's, that's where we're going. That's where we're starting with this morning. And we'll come full circle. We'll talk about sovereignty. We'll talk about sin. And we'll talk about how God sends us into the world and how we can better engage the world with, uh, with the gospel around these issues. Okay? So does that sound good? Sounds good? Okay. All right. You should have some more notes coming up here. <clears throat> Here's the thing. As we start on, on point number one, in your, or rather point number two, the sovereignty of God, the life support of the soul, there's some questions that have to be answered. Here's the questions. I'm just going to read a couple of them. You've got more in your notes. As we think about the sovereignty of God, right? Because if God is not sovereign all of, over all of this, then what's the point? If it's just up to us, it's too big, it's too massive, people's hearts are too hard, but it's not up to us only. God is in control over this. So if God is sovereign over sin and evil, because to be sure, this sin that we're talking about, the sins that we're discussing, it is evil. It is wrong. It is, it is sin. It is choices and the flesh that belongs in every part of us, that sinful part that is in rebellion against God, even in, as Christians, that desire wrong things, that lust after other things besides the Lord. So if God is sovereign over sin and evil, in what sense is God sovereign over those things? What exactly is his relationship to those things? Does God merely just know about those things? Maybe you've asked that question. If God knows about them and and he's not sovereign, well, then what's what's the, the outcome there? Or does God just passively allow or <clears throat> let all this sin and evil happen and then kind of afterwards turn it for good? Is he just kind of uh, merely allowing it to happen and then he turns it for good? Or, or did God act, uh, did he actively predestine and design those things to, co- to happen in eternity past? And does he, does he govern them and guide them and control them as they happen? And, and really that's, that's, really what we're arguing here. God not only predestined and designed, he had a plan, and he controls and governs and guides every single thing in existence and history and in the world. Does God's sovereignty over evil in any way lessen the guilt or the responsibility of those who commit acts of sin and evil? That's a big question. Does God's sovereignty, does it, does it lessen the responsibility of those who commit these horrible acts of sin? Not only those who are tempted by sexual sins or lust or idolatry or envy or pride, but even those who, who perpetrate those sins against other people. And some of you have been the, the, the victims of sins that people have committed against you, even in this very topic, and I recognize that. In a church our size, people have been sinned against horribly. And it is heartbreaking and it's serious and God takes it seriously. And so we're not going to speak flippantly about any of this. So here's kind of the traditional way that this, <clears throat> the big question, the problem of evil. How many of you have heard that before? The problem of evil. Problem of evil. The question is, how can a God who is supposedly good... Uh, how, how can we live in a world with so much evil if this God is actually God, if he is God, and if he's good? So here, here's some ways it's, it's written in your notes there. Either God is, here's how it's been kind of stated in the past. God is all-powerful, but not all-good. Thus, evil can exist. So God must have some, some evil in him as well, but we know that that's not true. <clears throat> or God is all-good, but not all-powerful. Thus, evil can exist. But we, we know for sure that God is all-powerful. Or God is all-powerful and all-good. Thus, evil can exist. But here's, here's a fourth kind of alternative uh, that, that we're going to offer this week that I think is more compelling and more clear. 
as the biblical answer to the solution of the problem of evil. Here it is, and I think it's in your notes there. It's the fourth one. Uh, Look at your notes if you've got them. God is all-powerful and all-good, and yet, and yet in some mystery, God lovingly ordained and designed the existence of both sin and evil for the everlasting and ever-increasing enjoyment. Thank you, Steve. Oh, and Staple. Thank you, brother. En- enjoyment of His glory forever. In other words, right? We got we got some more notes here. So, would you mind if, if, if you if you don't have some notes, would you raise your hand and we'll try and get those around? Okay. Uh, hopefully, we have enough. But yeah, just keep your hand up, and John will bring those around here. So God is all powerful and all good, and yet in some mystery, right? We don't understand all of this. God lovingly ordained and he designed both the existence and, uh, sorry, the existence of both sin and evil for our enjoyment of his glory forever. Forever. Now, you might have some questions about that, but I just want you to think about that for a little while and we'll kind of walk through that. Now, when we, we talk about the sovereignty of God, there's a lot of terminology in the Bible that we need to kind of wrap our minds around and be thinking about. So there's terms like ordain. Ordain or predetermine or predestined or design. We've been talking about some of these things in the FOF classes as, as Ethan and, and, and Bob Johnston and myself uh, have, have been teaching. Uh, the, the sovereignty of God. There's a lot of language that, that's wrapped up in that theological concept. Design, decree, plan. Uh, and those are going to be fairly interchangeable terms for us over, over the next couple of weeks here. But all of those are used to describe God's actions in eternity past. Those terms guide and govern and control and direct, those are going to be used interchangeably as well. And all of those terms will be used to describe God's actions now and in the present as God is guiding and governing and controlling and directing the the course of history. He's active in and involved in the world right now. So this is important for us, right? You can see because when we start to think about, okay, if I have a role, a job in reaching those in my world, whether in Placerville or in Sacramento or in my neighborhood, or when I'm on, on the road traveling or I'm on an airplane, if we have a job, we're going to run into, in all that, we're going to run into all sorts of lifestyles and worldviews and people trapped in all sorts of different kinds of sin. We must know that God is not only Sovereign in the past, but he is orchestrating all of the events of today, your very life, so that everything that happens in your day, everything that happens in your life is from the hand of a loving God who wants to magnify himself in your life, through your life. And specifically, for our topic, for our, for our discussion, through the salvation, the, the reaching and the saving of those trapped in life-destroying sin. Because it is that. It is exactly that. Body, soul, mind, all of it. And so there's, we just need to know that. As we, as we think about this, we need to remember that, okay, God is not only in control of the past and the future, <clears throat> but he is guiding and governing and controlling and directing all things even now. And so let's think about some aspects of God's sovereignty. And, and I know I gave you a ton of verses, Okay. Uh, we're not going to cover all of those, so you can go back and, and read those on your own as well. But six, six aspects of God's sovereignty, and they're, they're going to be rather sequential. <clears throat> and if you were to bust out a, a good systematic theology book, you'd find a lot of these categories in, in those books. So this is, this is kind of a, a theology class on, uh, I don't know, a like, like, a overview, a, a flyby of the sovereignty of God, <clears throat> but specifically over sin and Satan and evil. And they're going to build on each other to, to basically make the case that not only is God sovereign in general, but specifically, He is sovereign over all things, including sin and evil. Sin and evil. So here's the first aspect that we need to come to grips with, uh, come to grips with as we think about the sovereignty of God. It's this. We need to think about a definition of the sovereignty of God. Now, I don't know. I don't remember if I put a, a kind of a lengthier definition in there for you guys. Is there kind of a paragraph there? 
Does it start with God's sovereignty means? Okay, good. So let's, let's just read that together. God's sovereignty means that in eternity past, God ordained, predestined, and designed. So you could just take one word. He, he ordained every moment of every event that would ever take place, including sin and evil. And, and how could he not? How could he not know? How could, he not, how, could, how could anything come to pass that God was not aware of if God is sovereign? Absolutely, he must be aware, and he not only is aware, but listen to this, and that he currently guides, governs, and controls every aspect of what he designed in eternity past for our joy, for those who love him. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars uh, in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that is, that is absolute sovereignty on display as we look at our world. And so sovereignty is defined not, not by something in general, but very specific. It's comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. Those terms like ordained and predestined and designed, guided, govern, and control, those are massive terms that we can't excuse God from when we think about sin and Satan and suffering. God is not hiding behind his holiness to say, "Ah, I didn't have anything to do with that. We'll we'll discuss that. But all of it, as we'll see through these verses, point to the sovereign hand of God, even even in sin and suffering. And so the significance of of this kind of terminology is that it seeks to indicate uh, the biblical reality that God does more than just passively allow. He's not just kind of allowing, like, yeah, sure, I'll allow that. Yeah, I'll let that one slide. I'll, okay, we'll, we'll kind of work that into the plan somehow. I didn't, I didn't intend for that, but here we go. You know, we'll kind of, we'll, we'll work with it. No, he is active. He's purposeful. He's intentional. He has a role in all things in such a way that doesn't make him an evildoer. Get that. Get that. It doesn't make him an evildoer, nor in any way that violates human responsibility. So when we look at sin and evil in the world, name the sin, name the evil. God is, these things exist in such a way that does not make God an evildoer and that does not violate human responsibility. We will give account for our lives and our actions and our sin and all of that. And so that's, that's the first aspect, just to kind of wrestle with the definition of sovereignty. But here's the second aspect, the sovereignty of God over all things. Let's just look at these verses here, okay? Um, we're going we're gonna to read a few of these. John, oh, do you have, you don't have notes. Oh, you sacrificed your notes for someone else. All right. I'll I'll try and, uh, yeah, I'll make sure we have more of these for next week. Psalm 115, verse three. Our God is in the heavens. And these are all the NASB, by the way. He does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46, nine. Remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Ephesians 1.11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things. How many things? How many things? All things. All things. That's right. <laughs> all things. All things. After the counsel of his will. Listen to this last one here, or these last, these last couple from Proverbs 16, 9. The, man, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is sovereign over the lives of men. 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's very decision. Every decision is from Yahweh or from the Lord. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He does it. Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for more for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Birds die every day. 
every day. Little, little insignificant creatures, sparrows. And God is aware of every single one. And he has ordained even their days such that he feeds them just what they need each and every day. And he knows when their lives will end. And so it's absolutely clear that God's sovereignty is meticulous. It's extensive and it is overall. It's all encompassing. Listen to Abraham Kuyper. He says this, he's a theologian who's with the Lord now. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, not a square inch of the planet, of the cosmos. God says, they are mine. So that's our second, uh, uh, that's that's the second aspect of God's sovereignty, that he's sovereign over all things. Read that Daniel text. It is so good. He has dominion. <clears throat> it's everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures throughout all generations. Can, can no one, uh, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does whatever he pleases. And God claims that all things are his. Every human life, every, every human's eternal destiny, it's all his. Let's think about a third aspect of God's sovereignty as we keep moving here. The sovereignty of God over suffering. Now, this is, this is where this starts to hit home. We all suffer. Some of you have suffered immensely in your lives. Some of you have family members whose suffering is, uh, would, would be uh, too devastating to tell. And to be sure, at first it sounds foreign to say that God designs and ordains and controls suffering. But just hang with me here. And that somehow, that somehow seems inconsistent with some of his perfections. Like his goodness, his love, his sovereignty, uh, his sovereignty, his holiness. And yet that is exactly what the scripture says. And we're going to see that here. Listen to what John Piper says. Actually, it's a woman who wrote to Piper in a book called Spectacular Sins, which is a great little book. It's small, but it is dense. It's like 120 pages of, of density. And you should read it. It's called Spectacular Sins. And she said this, it is a, a woman, an anonymous woman wrote this letter to Piper. It is, a radical, it is radical thinking to say that God wills and ordains our suffering and not just passively allows it, hoping to make the best of it for us. As I've grown in my walk, I can see that nothing in this world happens apart from the sovereign will of God. And I bet you, if you were to ask a 70-year-old in this room, they would say, she's right. She's right. I've been through and seen too much to say that God was not at work in all of it because he is in control of everything. And they have suffered more than you. They've gone through trials more than me and you. And they would say, yes, God, I see it. God is in control of all of it. And I trust him more as a result of these sufferings and trials. I'm I'm almost certain of it. So let's look at these. Let's let's see if the text proves this true, that the sovereignty, that God God is sovereign over even suffering, all suffering. Exodus 4. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him what mute or what deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I Yahweh? Implication. God is sovereign over the tongue, over the ears, over the over the over our senses, over our eyes. He is the one who even has ordained and created those who do not see or cannot speak or cannot hear all for what? His glory. And that's exactly what he's saying to Moses. Moses, you think you can't speak? You're not eloquent enough? You're going to mess it up? Wrong. I could, I could send a deaf person. I could send a, a mute person to, to Pharaoh and I would accomplish my purposes. I have a purpose in all of this. Deuteronomy 32, 29. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. We don't understand. We're not all wise. But God is. Job, we, we love Job because we relate to Job. Job, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and 
Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin or blame God. And then he said to his wife, do you still hold fast your integrity? Sorry, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and what? Die. Die. Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. That word adversity is, is translated many other places in the Old Testament as evil. Evil. It's the same word. Shall we not accept good from God and not accept evil? In all this, Job did not sin in his lips. In other words, what Job just said was not wrong. That both the good and adversity, the good and the evil are all governed by a sovereign and all-powerful God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then 2 Samuel 12, 15. And I'm not saying this is easy to swallow, right? We're not saying that this is an easy pill to swallow. But it is our life support. So Nathan, 2 Samuel 12, 15, went to his house and then the Lord struck the child. Who struck the child? The Lord. Yahweh struck the child. Same word used to describe when Yahweh struck his own son. He struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. He afflicted this child. First Peter four nineteen. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Suffering happens according to the sovereign will of God. Again, is that easy for us to swallow? No, but we've got to come to grips with it. And so here's a key question. In what way, right? And I know you're, you're wrestling with this question. We all do. In what way, Does God ordain and control suffering? In what way does he do that? In other words, what could possibly be the motive of God to ordain pain and suffering even in the lives of people? There is a 13-year-old child in our county, in El Dorado Hills, who took their life several weeks ago. 13-year-old girl. Because she was confused about the things that we're going to talk about in this class. Her gender, her identity, her desires and all of that. At least this is part of the the situation. This is real. She was suffering from sin. There was untold difficulties and sufferings in her life. This is not hypothetical or just out there somewhere. This is in our world. So in what way does God ordain and control suffering? What, what could be his motive? Lamentations 3.33 says this about suffering in the lives of people. He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. And I think you have in your notes there that that term willingly in the Hebrew is essentially kind of a, a collapse of, of three Hebrew words. I actually was talking to my brother-in-law over our family reunion about this. He's a Hebrew scholar. And you were kind of walking through this. And it's, it's from his heart. It's, it's, it's one word all in one. From his heart. From the heart. And the significance that it sheds is that it sheds light on the motive that moved God to ordain suffering. Remember, ordain means that that he planned it in eternity past. He had a plan and he had a desire and he was going to accomplish something. And what Jeremiah tells us in, in Lamentations 3, he wrote Lamentations, what he tells us is that God does not afflict from his heart. Now we... When we afflict someone, we do it to hurt them out of evil and out of envy and out of hatred. Right? That is, that is how we afflict people. But God does not do it from his heart. That is, God does not take inherent delight 
or pleasure in ordaining pain. God is not bloodthirsty or malicious. This is not the God that we know, the God that we serve. But at very least, this verse indicates for us that when God afflicts, the motive is ultimately what? Loving. It is ultimately loving when God afflicts with pain and with suffering. He does not afflict from the heart. He takes no inherent delight or pleasure in it. He's not bloodthirsty or malicious. His motive is ultimately loving. So if you have questions, I want you to jot those down in your notes there, okay? Be tracking with questions there. And we can talk about these. But So as we think about that, okay, what... Uh, that God is sovereign over suffering and we're beginning to think about his motive for even allowing a world and, and ordaining, not only allowing, but ordaining a world where suffering and sin would exist for his greater glory. Let's think about a fourth aspect, the sovereignty of God over Satan. Because that's a big question, isn't it? What about Satan? Okay, suffering and, and sin, that's kind of just like, uh, it, it's, it's um, uh, a little bit, um, what's the word? Uh, concrete, abstract, like it's out there. You know, it just kind of, it just happens in people's lives. You don't really know where it's coming from and what the cause is. But what about Satan? He's a person, he's a, he's a being. He's an, a, a created being. Is God sovereign over Satan? Well, contrary to what many believe about Satan, first of all, he's not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. Satan is not. Satan is not all places at all times. He does, he's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. Satan doesn't have some free will to do whatever he pleases. Rather, all of his actions, get this, all of Satan's actions are ultimately and sovereignly determined by God. Satan is fully responsible and accountable for his evil actions and he will pay in the lake of fire forever. But in some profound mystery, God exercises absolute control and dominion over him. Having predestined all that he would do, every single step, every single temptation, every single sin that Satan has ever committed, every single deception, as he is the dragon in Revelation who deceives the nations, all of this under the hand of a sovereign God. Listen to John Piper again. In other words, behind all disease and disability is the ultimate will of God. Not that Satan is not involved. He is probably always involved in one way or another with destructive purposes, but his his power is not decisive. Satan's power is not absolute. He does not have supreme control over this world. God is. God does. Listen again to Job chapter 1, verse 8. It's in your notes there as we think about the sovereignty of God over Satan. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Yahweh asks Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then what did God give Satan permission to do? To afflict him. But not to kill him, right? Colossians 1, verses 15 to 16. It's just the, the reference right above that one. He is the image, speaking of Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Who's included in that? All things. Satan. By him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This is speaking about earthly and heavenly rulers and dominions and authorities. Both. All things have been created through Him, and get this, for Him. All things. All things. Even Satan serves the for Him purposes of God. That one day when Christ crushes Satan once and for all, the great deceiver and destroyer of the nations, 
that that will have been for him, predestined, predetermined from before time in God's eternal plan, his eternal mind. All things are for Christ. So there's a lot for us to consider there. There's more passages to consider. Let's think about 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10 in this last section or this section here. And here's the summary. Again, as we think about the sovereignty of God over Satan, a helpful way to understand and and articulate the involvement of Satan in the affairs of the world. And this is from, I believe, uh, I didn't write my footnote here, the MacArthur and Mayhew Biblical Doctrine, uh, Systematic Theology. Satan might be involved, but God is definitely involved. God is always sovereign and Satan... (laughs) never is so satan might be involved in something when you're tempted or when you've sinned you just punched your brother in the shoulder for the third time that day and like ah man i'm sorry mom satan made me do it you heard that kind of uh reasoning before well you can't necessarily blame satan for your sin first you have to take responsibility for your own sin your own actions your own affections and desires and behaviors satan might be involved He might have given a little boost to your elbow as you slugged your brother, right? Probably not. He might be, but God is always sovereign and Satan never is. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. Remember this, God is always sovereign, but Satan never is. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, and I know we're not giving you context here, but just you'll see the part that, that matters here. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me, Paul says, a thorn in the flesh, We were talking about this with a couple brothers the other week. A messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. What are some options of what this thorn might be? Just throw it out there to y'all. What? An eye problem, a a vision impairment. Yeah. What others? Eli, you got one? Uh, uh, Gallbladder. Gallbladder. Some some physical ailment. Okay. Could, could, Could be a could be anything for that matter. A gallbladder, yeah, like a, a yeah, appendicitis. It could be a person. It could, you know, it could be a could be it could have been an evil spirit, a, a demon, something like that. You know, those are various options, and I would say less likely a demon, probably more something physical that was plaguing him, or a, or even a person who is a thorn in his flesh. But he says concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that I might that it might leave me, and He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul understood that God was sovereign over sin, over suffering, even over Satan himself. Because God loves to magnify his strength through weaknesses, through odds that seem impossible. God loves to magnify his strength. He loves to magnify himself and he will magnify himself over Satan one day when he finally once and for all defeats him in the end times. Fifth aspect of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God over sin and evil. So the scriptures are clear as we think about God over sin and evil and his sovereignty. They're clear that God is absolutely sovereign over sin. The Bible says that God does more than merely know about it. He doesn't just know about sin and evil. Right? So when we think about the sins of our culture and the sins of our day, does God, God, don't you see how terrible this is? How corrupt and how disgusting and how awful this is, this world is right now? What are we to do about this? Is God going to do anything? Doesn't he know? And the answer from Scripture is yes. And this is all going according to plan. The Bible even says that God does more than even just permit or let it happen. Rather, the Bible explicitly states that it is God, uh, that God in some mystery ordains and wills it. You got to get that in your head. God ordains it and he wills it. And yet... <clears throat> in such a way that does not, like we said earlier, compromise his infinite character 
nor violate anyone's personal responsibility. Here's Piper again. God can ordain that sin be, that it is, that it exists, without himself sinning or compromising man's accountability for sinning. Because without sin, there would be no cross. No cross without it. And the cross is the most glorious and wonderful display of the perfections of God and His mercy and His kindness, His power. All of that. God can ordain that sin be without Himself sinning or compromising man's accountability for sinning. And then as we think about God's sovereignty over sin and evil, there's, there's really two kinds of evil that we have to think about. There's natural evil and there's moral evil. Now what is natural evil? What, you got it in your notes there, but what are some examples of natural evil? Tsunamis that devastate island nations. Absolutely. Fires wipe out villages and towns and cities. What else? Any significant weather event. Yep, yep. Natural kind of natural disasters or natural events like that. Earthquakes, fires, heat waves. I mean, think about it. Uh, If you've ever lived in in a place that gets snowy and you know, reaches degrees, you know, like zero degree temperature in the winters or, or, or minus zero without infrastructure, heat, gas, electricity, you would die in the winter, wouldn't you? I mean, so, so God, uh, we have all sorts of things that are kind of working against us in our world naturally because of sin, because of evil, uh, since the fall, hurricanes, floods, all of that disease, but then there's moral sin, <clears throat> Sinful acts that are committed by human beings. And those are the ones that, that stick with us the longest. Those are the ones that, that really hit home and hurt our soul. Genesis 50 verse 20 says this, As for you, as Joseph was talking to his brothers after they had sinned greatly against him, you meant evil against me. And so the question is, again, is God sovereign over sin and evil? Joseph thought so. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good. But God wasn't like, oh, yikes, this is not good. Uh, Joseph's brothers are really mean and being really bad. And, and there's this whole kind of messy situation out here. Let's, let's kind of fix it. The Trinity kind of gets together and, and fixes up this plan to kind of resolve everything. No, God meant it for good in order to bring about his this present result to preserve many people alive. Absolute sovereignty over sin and over evil. There's a bunch of other verses there talking about hardening Pharaoh's heart and all of that. You could look at 1 Kings 12. I encourage you to look back at these verses. Let's skip down to Isaiah 45, verse 7. Isaiah 45, verse 7 Here's the verse, the one forming light. Yeah, it should be kind of toward the middle or middle bottom of those verses there. The one forming light and creating darkness. Who is this one? Causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all of these things. I am the Lord who does all of these The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the one who does all of these things. And so God is the creator of both calamity uh, or evil, not in the sense that he delights in evil, because he, he specifically does not delight in evil, nor does it mean that he in any uh, way actually commits evil, because he most certainly does not, but God is the creator of evil or calamity in the sense, get this, in the sense that he is the one who ultimately designed, ordained, and predestined that it would come into existence. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? God is the one who ultimately designed and ordained and predestined that it came into existence because all things happen by his decree. All things. Absolutely. There's a lot of verses to look at there. 
And so the sixth aspect that we'll have to kind of come back to next week because it's 945 now, but how to state the problem of evil. So we're going to, next week, we'll, we'll start the class. Well, you've got it in your notes. You're going to wrap it up there, but we'll summarize it together and I'll, I'll have a couple of notes to share tomorrow. But, but let, me, let me just close with this. As we think about sin and evil, as we think about the sins of our age that are so destructive, literally destroying people's lives, their bodies, their minds, sin and evil in the world is the kind of black, velvety tapestry that that puts the precious jewels, the precious diamonds of God's beauty, His glory, His perfections on display. They, it is. It does. And that is the most loving thing that God can do is to display Himself to the world that we might know Him and love Him and enjoy Him and, and be with Him forever. And so that is exactly God's plan is to, is, to, is to even harness evil and suffering for His ultimate glory and that our, our hearts would be delighted in Him. So that's where we're going with all of this. So let's pray and wrap up our time. Father, that is the ultimate reason that you ordained that evil would exist so that at the end of the age, we would all look back on human history and that we would behold the full spectrum of your perfections, your wrath and your anger against sin and your love and mercy toward undeserving sinners like us. And for all eternity, we will have the everlasting and ever increasing joy of knowing you as the great Redeemer and Savior and Master over the world. And so God, while these things are are great and lofty and we can barely scratch the surface of understanding them, we praise you for who you are and we give you thanks. So give us hearts that want to trust your word, that will believe your truth, that will surrender and submit ourselves to you so that we say, yes, Lord, whatever your word says, we will believe it, we will obey it, we will do it for your glory. And Lord, as we continue to think about these issues, would you help us to think wisely, carefully, lovingly as you do? Think about our students who need to think wisely and carefully and lovingly in their in their schools, in their in their classrooms, in their workplaces. Would you help them and strengthen them and parents who parents who are walking with their kids through these things. So bless our our time these next couple of weeks as we continue to wrestle through these issues in Jesus name. Amen.